Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Haley Moss. Haley is an attorney, author, artist, speaker, and autism self-advocate. At only 25 years old, she has already published two books. The first is titled Middle School, The Stuff Nobody Tells You About, and the second is A Freshman Survival Guide for College Students with Autism Spectrum Disorders, The Stuff Nobody Tells You About. Her writing and artwork have been featured throughout media outlets such as The Huffington Post, Teen Vogue, and CNN, to name a few. Haley is currently working on a third book in which she aims to demystify stigmas around disability within the legal profession. Haley also hosts a podcast called Spectrumly Speaking with Dr. Lori Butts. In today's show, Haley shares how she navigated social norms during her school days what a sensory overload experience feels like for her, and how her strengths as an autistic person have advanced her career. As an attorney, Haley offers valuable insight about the history of the Americans with Disabilities Act and explains why employers need to strive for inclusion and accessibility in the workplace. Other topics we discuss are benevolent ableism, the effects of social media on the neurodiversity movement, whether autism is a disorder or a difference, and the dangers of eugenics. In this episode, discover what's possible when difference becomes an asset. To learn more about Haley and her work, please visit autismknowsnoborders.com. And now, I present you, Haley Moss. Hi Haley, welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, we have a wide range of topics to cover, and I'm really excited that you're here. Me too. So you were diagnosed with autism when you were three years old. When did you first feel different? I don't think I had that traditional experience of feeling different. I always thought that I was the cool kid and everybody else was weird or different. So I always thought that I was kind of like the really overconfident, really just felt like everything was... I knew I was different, but I didn't know how kind of thing, I guess, was the best way to describe it. But the first time I had autism explained to me, I was nine years old. And it started with a sit down with mom and dad saying that you have magical powers, because at the time I was obsessed with Harry Potter. (laughs) So it was explained to me through the lens of Harry Potter of Harry is different from the muggles, so the non-magic folks, because he just doesn't fit in there. He has the scar. He has magic parents, even though they're no longer alive. He just doesn't fit in there. But even when he gets to Hogwarts, he doesn't quite fit in because there he's the standout boy who lived. He's famous Harry Potter. But even though he's different and doesn't quite fit in in either world, he is still the hero of the story, that the stories are still about him. And he does have that respect and acceptance. So I kind of grew up with this magic type feeling is that you're different, but that's not better and it's not worse. It's just different. And different could be extraordinary, is that's what my mom used to say. So I never saw it as being different in a bad way at all. Mm-hmm. So you've always had a supportive family. My parents are the best. Yeah, that's great. How did your parents deal with finding out about the diagnosis? 
Did the doctors set any limitations for your future? So I like to preface this with, please remember this was 1997. And 1997 autism understanding is not the same as 2020. Mm -hmm. So the internet wasn't as developed as it was. We didn't have these big communities. We didn't have the sheer amount of books and resources. We had less and we didn't have these one in 54 type statistics either. So again, somewhat a different world. And the first time my mom heard the word autism, she wasn't really sure what to think is it wasn't as commonly in the discourse as it is now. And she first thought it might've been an auditory disorder because I didn't always respond to things. And when the doctor started explaining, and they did set limitations, they told my parents that I would be lucky if I made a friend, if I graduated high school, got a driver's license, worked a minimum wage job. They were told all these things about their three-year-old. But when I think about it, I'm like, who would tell that to the parents of a three-year-old first off? But it was very scary for them. And I understand that confusion and frustration right away is if that's what you're told and you, there isn't that much out there and you've never heard of this before, of course you're going to be afraid and you're not going to know, especially when you have a little kid. But thankfully, my parents took it as a call to action. We're going to get to work. We're going to start with speech and OT and spending time on the floor and making sure that she's learning and trying to do what they could for me. And I am so appreciative that even when the world said no, they said yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've defied all of those expectations that they had set on you. I just think we shouldn't be setting expectations that are so low, especially with people with disabilities in general, because then it looks like anytime you overcome them, it's, you know, some big miracle. And it really isn't a miracle to try to live the best life that you can. Right. What was school like for you? It depends on which phase of my life, but I was always a happy kid. So even in elementary school, I had friends because I was friends with all the boys. And I was friends with all the boys because I played video games. And I played with Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon cards. So I was friends with all the boys. And the social rules, at least amongst young boys when I was growing up, were a lot simpler than hanging out with the girls. And I wanted to be friends with the girls, but I didn't have the social skills. And it was so nuanced, and I didn't quite understand what to do. And my interests weren't the same as theirs, because once upon a time, the boys were the ones who were playing the video games. That's who I wanted to hang out with. I didn't care about Bratz dolls and Polly Pockets and other stuff that was very gendered and seemed to be what the little girls were doing. And I remember the first time I was trying to be friends with the little girls in school was probably the fourth grade. And this girl, I think her name was Cassie. She had pet hermit crabs. And at show and tell or whatever, she'd love to bring the hermit crabs to school. And I was afraid of them. I was so afraid. And I just didn't know what to think of it. And I remember finally forcing myself to be brave and touching them. And I just couldn't forget the way that their little like feet poked my hands. And it was such <laughs> a sensory experience and I wanted it to end. Mm. And I don't think we were friends after that. <laughs> and she thought I just didn't like her crabs and I just couldn't handle the way that they were poking my hands. Mm -hmm. And that was around the same time you found out about your autism, right? Mm -hmm. So were you open about your autism from the beginning? Not really. So I wasn't really open, especially as a younger kid. It was a very need to know basis. So it would be telling like teachers or other parents if necessary. But for me, that self-advocacy moment didn't really start until maybe I was a teenager. So it started for me after the eighth grade, I was invited to speak on a panel at the Autism Society of America conference. And I've always been raised to give back to other people. So I agreed to do it. And 
I mainly was excited because when I got to this panel, I was the only girl and I was the youngest one by like a lot. So I'm 13. I'm ready to go to high school. I'm very excited. And when I'm on this panel, somebody asked me some question. I don't remember what question it was, but it was just so interesting being able to give insight as a young girl when everyone else is like a college age or older man. So I was trying to give this insight and someone actually asked me like how I found out I was diagnosed. And I told the story about Harry Potter. And that's actually how I got started with writing my book about middle school is because someone from that publisher was in the audience and I was able to have those conversations and make those relationships. But I really started being open with my peers probably the next year in high school because I was really doing a lot with my artwork. I was always a very big illustrator at the time and I loved to draw. And I was doing my first art show with my paintings. And part of my proceeds were going to a local autism organization that now I serve on the board of. So go figure, very full circle experience. Mm -hmm. And I gave a flyer to my freshman English teacher. And he asked me if I would like to share about the show with the rest of the class. Of course, I'm very excited to do so because I would love people to go. And he asked me why the proceeds are going to this specific autism organization. I am not a good liar. I also am not good at coming up with an on-the-fly response that isn't true. So that was the moment that I felt like I had to tell my class I was autistic. And I did. And contrary to what you might believe, it didn't make my life worse. It didn't make my life better at school. People treated me almost exactly the same. And I didn't realize what an impact that had on my classmates until I was older. Because people will still tell me they remember that. Or the first time it really came back was our senior year of high school when somebody came out as gay. And they mentioned, I felt safe coming out because you came out freshman year and told everyone you were on the spectrum. Oh. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting experience. Thank you. I'm glad that you had the confidence to be yourself in that specific moment. And I'm glad that I was able to do that. So it really is interesting to see what influence you've had on your peers as time goes by. Mm -hmm. And now that we're eight years out of high school, I have people that I've never spoken to in high school tell me that they feel inspired or that they learned something from what I share now. And it's just very interesting to kind of see that evolution from when I was in school, kind of being the quiet kid who struggled making friends and kind of keeping themselves and being involved with my artwork and writing and other things to now people listen and want to hear what I have to say. It's just a very different experience. And it really does feel wild sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I'm still not friends with these people. I still struggle to make those relationships. Mm. I do want to talk about how you make friends now. But back in high school, were you masking in any way? Like you were open about your autism, but were you trying to pretend to fit in? I wanted to be accepted just like anyone else. And I think high school is one of those weird times that you want to be yourself and you think people are going to be accepting, but it's still very clicky. It's still very complicated with the social rules. Mm -hmm. So I did find myself masking, but I didn't know how else to think of it. I would think of it kind of as like being a social secret agent, just wanting to know what was cool and to fit in. And when I was in high school, probably the most popular thing my freshman year was Twilight. And of course, now it's kind of laughable and now everyone's excited because Midnight Sun is coming. So everyone's talking about Twilight all over again, like 10 years later, but okay. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I had to know everything there was to know about Twilight, even though I had no interest in love stories and no interest in vampires. So I, of course, read all the books, saw all the movies, and I had what to say anytime someone talked about Twilight, just so I could fit in or have that social knowledge to at least have a conversation. 
So even if I wasn't a twihard, I had to at least act like one or I had the knowledge to at least pretend to be a twihard just so I can make those relationships. And it actually did help me make friends. And I realized once I got in the door, I can kind of drop the mask a little bit. It's just making that initial connection is so difficult, especially when you're young and you're like, how do I get started? And I'm not the type of girl who would walk up to people, still not, and be like, hi, I'm Haley, how are you? And try to make those connections just very extroverted. That just wasn't me. Mm-hmm. What is it like for you now when you meet new people and you're trying to make friends? I think now it's also different because there are times that people will come up to me and we'll start a conversation. And I always just appreciate when people are honest and if we talk about something that we're passionate about, it's so much easier. So I think now I'm getting better at learning to find my people. So whatever that means or what you're interested in and what you're passionate about. And sometimes it could just be talking about trashy television, or sometimes it could just be talking about advocacy or talking about different career aspects. So sometimes I end up talking to a lot of law students. I end up talking to a lot of lawyers. I end up talking to people who care about justice or just, you realize it becomes about your interests and also your values. So. I think in high school, I wasn't thinking about talking to people with similar values, but the older I get, the more I realize that's something I think is important. Mm -hmm. When we met earlier this week, we were talking about if it was easier for you to make friends with other people on the spectrum. And I think you gave a really interesting answer. Could you share that again? So I do have plenty of friends on the spectrum and I also have plenty of neurotypical friends, but there's kind of this belief, especially when it comes to friendships and also romantic relationships that everyone I want to know is someone else who is autistic. And I like to remind people, autism is not the basis for a friendship, right? Like just like not all women are going to be friends with each other. Not all people from a certain cultural background are going to be friends with each other. We're all unique. We all have different personalities and different interests. There are people on the spectrum who are some of my closest, dearest friends who I would take a bullet for. And then there are people who I absolutely can't stand. (laughs) And I feel like that's with any type of person, really. And I think it's really important that I won't get along with everybody. And I won't be friends with everybody who has that same experience. A diagnosis or label is not the basis of a friendship. It could be something you share in common. And I love when I get to talk to my other autistic friends and the certain conventional rules of conversation don't matter that the way that we communicate with each other is very differently. And it's a lot like speaking another language. So it's a lot like speaking to people in your first language and realizing you don't have to follow the rules. So I think about this a lot with like writing emails is whenever you write an email, you're like, I have to follow all the conventional neurotypical rules. I have to write the dear so-and-so hope all is well, blah, blah, blah. Like all these like extra words that don't get to the point. What I talk about, if I was emailing my autistic friend, I'd be like, I had a bad day. Like, just to say that, not like, I need some advice. I need this. And just be like, I had a bad day. Like, just straight up. And I get texts like that all the time. And I'm like, I had a bad day. I want to talk about this. Or did you ever realize that sometimes you oversleep your alarm and you feel like you can't function? Because I get texts like that from some of my friends who are autistic too. And I'm like, yep. Mm -hmm. And that'll just be how we communicate. And it's really cool not having those same rules. It's like speaking your native language. Right. So it's more direct. It's very direct. And at the same time, if you make a mistake or you struggle, someone will tell you like, uh, that was mean. Mm -hmm. That was bad. Like it's very straightforward instead of, do I tell them? Do I not? How do I sugarcoat this? People are very direct and honest and it also helps you grow. And I wish that more people communicated and said what they meant and meant what they said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wish that too. (laughs) And it's something that I really appreciate about my autistic friends. But I also love the neurotypicals. I love just being around people. When I have the like 
energy and I understand what's going on with them and I understand where they're coming from. I love being around people, even if it's exhausting sometimes. Mm. Yeah. And that just breaks another stereotype about autism, that autistic people are not social creatures. I don't know. I'm an introvert at heart, but I just like being around people. I like talking to people. Like one of the biggest joys of what I do is that I get to talk to people. And even with like working on a book, I make sure because there are gaps in my knowledge and I want to talk to people who have that experience. And I get to just talk to people and ask them questions about their experience and things that interest me. And it's really cool. So it is inherently social. It just isn't social the way that I think we're used to socializing at the same time. Right. So my social life might not look the same as a typical 25 year old. Like I'm not going out every night or going, I mean, obviously in quarantine and with social distancing measures, things are very different too. But even in the before time, that wasn't how I'd be. I wasn't like a party girl. I wasn't going out a lot. That wasn't how I'd socialize, but I still had friends and I still had people that I was connected to. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your books. So your first book, as you mentioned, is about middle school. It's titled Middle School, The Stuff Nobody Tells You About. And I love that you cover so many different topics from how to navigate friendships to how to use a locker and also how to deal with your body changing. So what inspired you to write the book? So I'm from the belief that middle school is everybody's collective awkward phase. So nobody quite knows what they're doing and everything is changing. And I went to three schools in three years. Mostly because I was struggling. It wasn't struggling. I was bored academically. Like I was struggling to feel challenged. I wanted to keep growing and I couldn't find the right place. So having three very different experiences, I kind of felt like I was the expert on middle school at the time. And I got asked a lot about being an adolescent young girl, especially when I was at ASA that year. And it kind of just came about as I would love to be able to help someone else because I went through a lot in those three years. And if something I went through can make someone else's life a little bit better, or they can learn something from it, then I'm happy to do that. I want to give back. If one thing I write in here helps somebody, then it was all worth it. And I can say that I got to do that. And it's genuinely why I love what I do overall is that I feel like I'm able to at least help somebody out every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it helps them feel that they're not alone in their struggles too. Mm -hmm. I also want to mention that your artwork is included in the book too. How would you describe your style? I think my style is very colorful. It's very cheerful and I just have a good time. I love bright colors. I love anime. I love pop art. I love things that are bright and they just make you happy. And that's something that I just value. And I hope that my art expresses that about me as a person is I'm always very, I try to be outgoing, even though I'm pretty introverted and shy, but I also want people to feel that sense of joy. And I think art is a great way to deliver that. Mm -hmm. Your second book is titled a Freshman Survival Guide for College Students with Autism Spectrum Disorders. Tell us about this one. So I wanted to write about college because when I was going to college, I went to the University of Florida. When I was going to college, everything out there was written by parents and professionals. Mm. There was nothing by autistic students for autistic students. And I wanted to fill that void. But I also wasn't sure what the best way to do it was. And I was doing it right after my freshman years, kind of just reflecting and things that I wish I had known and could have done differently. And what's really interesting, I think, about the college book is I'm really proud of it. And I reflect back a lot on work that I've done over the last 10 years or so. And I see how much my views and how much my perspective has changed and evolved over time is I probably wouldn't always give the exact same advice that I would have given at 18 or 19 that I would at 25. 
And it's so interesting, especially because then I spent another three years in law school after college. So I've been on university campuses for what, like six years at that point. Mm -hmm. So then I had very different feelings based on that experience. And I'm like, oh, if I could go back, I would give even more advice and I want to help. And even now I talk to students a lot. So I see kind of what goes on today. And I feel like things move so quickly, even to social media. We didn't have as much Instagram presence. We didn't have TikTok or Snapchat. We didn't have any of that when I was in college. It was just like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, barely. So it's really interesting seeing how much things are evolving socially and even on campuses and off campus. So it's something that I'm glad that I'm able to kind of demystify a little bit, but I feel like there's so much work to be done in that space. Yeah. So if a freshman picked up your book, what would be the one piece of advice that you hope they would take away from it? Don't be afraid to ask for help. I know that you're at this point in your life and a lot of young people feel this way and myself included, and I'm still struggling with this a little bit, is you think you have to do everything by yourself. You think that your independence will somehow be taken away or limited if you don't do it all alone, but independence isn't really the goal. I feel like the goal is knowing when you do need help and interdependence. So it's okay if you can't clean your room by yourself or if you need to go to a professor because you don't understand something. Because I was always afraid to ask for help. And going to a professor to me was so intimidating because I'm like, here's this person who's like God status, knows everything to know about this particular topic. And here is me, this like lowly student who doesn't quite understand. And they're going to think that I'm dumb or I didn't pay attention or something else. And really, they want to help you. They want you to succeed. And I wish I had known that there are so many people, even if they don't always know you, that are still invested in your success. So asking for help, whatever that means, whether it's in class, whether it's your mental health, whether it's help cleaning your apartment or talking to your parents more than once a day, that's totally valid. And it doesn't mean that you're not independent or that someone's going to take that away from you. It means that you're self-aware enough to realize that you can't do it alone. And it sounds kind of self-righteous to say that sometimes, especially when you're talking about young people, but there is kind of this fear amongst young people with disabilities that you might not have the same freedoms and independence if you do ask for help. And that's not true. Yeah, that's really good clarification. So Haley, you're the first openly autistic person to practice law in Florida. I think there are plenty, and I'm beginning to learn that there are lots of neurodiverse attorneys out there. But I feel like it's a lot like planting a flag sometimes, or that's the documented first time that we've had that discussion. And openly autistic, I think is a huge thing because in legal, there's so much stigma surrounding neurodivergence and mental health and just all of these different disabilities as well as that attorneys with disabilities make up less than 1% of attorneys that are self-reporting. And that to me is pretty glaring, especially given, I think what 20 or 25% of the population has a disability. So if there's such little documented reporting, there's so much stigma and so many people who won't disclose. Right. So being open to me is really important because it does help demystify that conversation and hopefully change it for the better. So even now I spend a lot of time being involved with the bar and different attorney initiatives because I think it's really important that attorneys understand neurodiversity, that they realize this exists in our profession, whether you know it or not. As I've been learning, there are much more cases and attorneys who have ADHD, autism, learning disabilities, et cetera, than I could have ever imagined. And it's really cool being connected with all of them now. But there's this whole like squad of neurodiverse attorneys and it's like, these are my people. We get it. Yeah. 
Are people surprised when they learn that you're a lawyer and you have autism? I don't think so anymore. I think it's kind of complicated for people who aren't used to it or they think that autism looks like one specific thing because as we've seen in media, the autism stereotype is always like a little boy who loves trains Mm -hmm. and is slapping his hands or that person grows up to be an engineer. So when they see a woman and they see someone who might be more creative or is an attorney, it kind of is like, wait, that doesn't fit what I've seen on TV. And I like to remind people that I still hear, so like Rain Man every once in a while. And I like to bring that up because Rain Man is older than me. (laughs) That movie existed before I was born and people still ask me about Rain Man. Mm -hmm. So that shows how much when autism is talked about in popular culture that it sticks around. Even if it's not the most accurate depiction or if it's the only depiction, which isn't really true in either count, but it still has a lasting effect. So people's idea of autism has to keep changing. And when more professionals and more people of different backgrounds are sharing their story and are open and sharing their story on their terms, so whatever they feel comfortable sharing, not necessarily just to fit a narrative of success or an inspiration, if they just want to say like, hi, you should know this about me because it means I might not look at you at work. Whatever sharing or disclosure looks like to you, just being visible is so powerful. It sends a message to the public that there is no one autism, and it sends a message to all families and young autistic people that you can make it in this world. And if we all keep sharing our who we are and being authentically ourselves, it's not a big deal when we become attorneys or we win Times Person of the Year like Greta Thunberg, even though I think if you win Times Person of the Year, it's a big deal no matter who you are. But it's not a big deal. It's like, here's the autistic person who did it. It's like, it's a person who did it and you are incredible. And I think having that sense of role models and knowing that people are doing it is so powerful. And I see it with young people a lot. So I'll hear from like teenagers or families of young people or prospective students that are like, oh my God, I didn't know any lawyers. And now I realize it's not crazy that I want to go and grow up to be a judge or a lawyer when I grow up. I'm like, go for it. And there will be a whole community of people here to welcome you when you're ready. Mm -hmm. One of your current projects is another book related to this. So tell us about that. So currently I am writing a book about neurodiversity for lawyers, which is like a dream come true. I never thought that I'd get to do this because it just seemed kind of scary because I didn't know how the profession would react or what would happen. But what I really want to do is give attorneys an understanding of neurodiversity and also just what it's like working with other attorneys who might have ADHD, autism, intellectual disabilities, learning disabilities, or even staff members. And also if you're working with clients or jurors or other people in the legal system who are neurodiverse or neurodivergent, that that understanding can help us. So I wanted to be able to kind of demystify all these different things and break down the stigma while also celebrating the strengths. Mm -hmm. Because When we work with people who are different than us, it benefits everyone. And so often the employment conversation, especially, focuses on tech. We don't talk about it in terms of legal. And law firm diversity is not very reflective of disability. Again, it's less than 1% at both the partner and the associate levels in firms. It's kind of abysmal. And there's all this fear about like the ADA and accommodation and what does that look like? And How do we make sure that we aren't shutting out disabled attorneys? And especially with autistic people, we have a high unemployment rate to begin with. How do we make sure that not only are we recruiting, but we're retaining and we're training and we're mentoring people who are different than us? So I really think that an understanding of neurodiversity for lawyers will help them 
be able to solve more client problems, be able to have more minds and more creativity within the profession. And also that we're able to better serve the public because that's what we do. We are supposed to give access to justice, no matter who you are. And if we understand what it's like working with all kinds of minds and that there are different types of neurology within the human experience and working with that, we could do so much better. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your own strengths as an autistic person and how that helps you with your career? So I'm not a human supercomputer, (laughs) which is kind of something that I feel like I have to clarify every once in a while because people assume you might be. But I think for me, I always see things very differently. And my dad explained this really well, is that most people see things on like the X and Y planes or axes. And sometimes you see the Z. So you see that like extra pattern, you recognize that extra thing that someone else might not have noticed. And I saw that for the first time in law practice very early when I was asked to research something. I'm like, but there's this whole other consideration that you didn't bring up. And he was like, the person I was working for was like, yeah, 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 okay. And then I researched what I was thinking as well as what I was asked to do. And I gave this really thorough report and it turns out what I was thinking was exactly the argument that was needed. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting back from vacation and the attorney I was working for was like, you know, we won that motion based on what you ended up researching. And I was like, you have to see things differently or you have to think about it outside of the box. Nice. I think outside of the box thinking and looking at things from a different perspective is really, really valuable. Mm-hmm. It's something that I know has helped me professionally. And I think personally, having a disability or even seeing things differently, you're able to emphasize with people more and empathize and understand what they're going through is that you are more attuned to injustice and you want to be able to help. And sometimes I've realized this, especially as I'm working on the book, is people inherently trust someone who's been through something similar and that has an understanding. So whenever I do talk to people who might have struggled with mental health, or they also have, are neurodivergent, but never really talked about it, people are very open to talk about it with someone who they think gets it. I've had that experience with journalists whenever I would interview for a story and the journalist had another disability or was autistic. I know we would have an instant, I know you're here to do the right thing by our community, that you have skin in the game. This is personal. This isn't just an objective. You're telling the story for the neurotypical able-bodied people. You're telling the story in a way that matters to you and that matters to me and that matters to everybody. So that's something that I've noticed too, is that empathy and that trust is something that I really value. And I know I've always been a good listener. That's what people tell me. So people do trust me. And I take that so seriously. And I realize that, especially in law, you have to earn people's trust and you want them to trust you. People don't trust lawyers naturally. It's kind of one of those things that we're seeing as the big scary villains on TV. So when people trust you, it's something that I cherish. And I'm really glad that my experiences make people feel that they can open up and that I'm not going to judge them either. Yeah. So what kind of law do you specialize in? I was practicing in healthcare and international law. I'm currently not practicing. So what I was doing pre-pandemic as well as I was doing a lot of speaking, and I also do a lot of consulting on compliance, workplace inclusion, and the Americans with Disabilities Act. So that way companies and businesses feel empowered to hire people with disabilities and autism and feel equipped to be able to not just get people in the door, but also keep them in the companies and in the businesses and compliant. And again, it's just a celebration. Yeah. What does inclusion mean to you? Inclusion to me means that everybody has a seat at the table and is part of that conversation. So Inclusion, I think, is one of these things that kind of comes across as a big buzzword now because everyone's like, 
yeah, we need to have more people, but having us isn't just enough. We need to be active. Inclusion is not just a thing you do. It's something that you practice. It's something that you actively have to be involved in. So it's making sure that you are taking into account different perspectives, making sure that things are equal, that there is equal opportunity, that everybody's voice is respected, accepted, and heard. So I think it's a lot more nuanced and it's something that we have to continue to strive for. Yeah. Can you talk about how disabled women can be multiply excluded from the conversation? I think that it goes across in general with marginalization that depending on where you're coming from, there's something that might other you or exclude you. So disability might, gender might, race might, religion might. So I know as a woman with a disability, I face the doubts about, again, gender. And I also know our society with ableism, you deal with that too. And I know when you factor in things like religion and race as well, you have different forms of privilege or different forms of oppression. So it's really important to understand how all these different experiences make us who we are and kind of shape what we have to contribute. Yeah. And you mentioned when we met earlier this week that autism is a boys club. (laughs) Could you elaborate more on that? I think autism is a boys club mostly because people talk about it and it's depicted mostly with young boys. We have this very gendered expectation of autism. Women are diagnosed later, if at all, or we get diagnosed with everything else but autism. And I think that people expect one version of autism and it's not always inclusive of women or gender nonconforming folks, so not men. So I think it's a really interesting conversation. And even just when we talk about other women's issues in relation to autism, so when we talk about healthcare or even in the middle school book, when I talked about puberty, these are things that we need to talk about. And even that disabled women are at risk of sexual assault, all these different things are part of the experience that need to be brought to the table. And talking about autism just through the male lens is completely exclusive of a lot of different perspectives and issues in our community. Yeah. Especially considering a lot of the diagnostic tools and the research out there is centered around the male perspective and how interventions would treat little boys. Mm-hmm. So what are some of your ideas to move society in this direction of inclusion? I think it starts with listening. Because I think there's two different big steps. Obviously, it's listening and learning and then action. So I think it's really important, especially for people who don't know about autism or disability. The first thing you should do is seek out disabled and autistic voices to start learning and listening. Because it's one thing to listen to a parent, but here's the thing. Autistic people are the everyday experts on autism. My parents and the professionals I've worked with over the years are amazing human beings. We are not discounting that whatsoever, but they can't tell you what goes on in my own head. They probably can't tell you why the fluorescent lights are horrible for me. They can guess, they can run studies and come up with a conclusion of fluorescent lights are the worst, capital T, capital W, the worst. And you could just ask me and I'll go, you know, it's because they hum and they're bright and they give me headaches and it's all bad all at once and it needs to end forever. So please outlaw them. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of that experience that no scientist or someone else can advocate on my behalf for to explain the why in my everyday experience. Same with all sorts of other sensory experiences or other traits of autistic people. So I always like to explain this through jazz music since jazz music is one of those things that always sends me into a sensory overload. It just does. And any casual observer would just realize Haley just really doesn't like jazz music. And they can run all sorts of different tests or someone else can say, just don't play jazz. And then I realize, you know, 
it's really just the saxophone. So if you have jazz with no saxophone, I could probably handle it. And that's what makes me go into sensory overload. So no saxophones. And it's not something that a lay person or even a scientist or even another person speaking on my behalf would be able to figure out unless they talk to me. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what goes on for you and your body during a sensory overload? It's kind of scary. You feel like everything's tensing up. It's just this loss of control because there's so much going on around you and you want it to stop. And sometimes the first thing, at least for me, I will try to run. I will try to get out of the situation however I can. And the best way to describe what the sensory experience is like is imagine being in like the electronics aisle of like Walmart or Target or some big box store and all the TVs are on, the volume is on, and they're all on different channels. And I'm going to ask you to listen to just one of them and watch one of them and try to get the message. And then you have all this other input coming in and it's just exhausting and overwhelming and anxiety inducing and just kind of a stressful, scary experience. And that's an experience I could feel with jazz music or just out in the world sometimes. And you, the first thing you want to do is like, wait, hold up, get me out of here. I need quiet. And it's just something that happens. And what I've learned is I can only fight it for so long on my own. And I've also learned to tell the people in my life, hey, if this happens, don't be afraid. Or hey, if this happens, I might just need some quiet, but I'll be okay. Or I might not be okay, let's leave. So it's just kind of communicating with the people you love and know, especially before it happens, or trying to find a way to make things feel safer. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier the ADA, which is the American with Disabilities Act. And this month marks the 30th anniversary of the ADA. So for our listeners who are not familiar, could you provide a brief background of the law and why it's important? Absolutely. So the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed in 1990 by former President George H.W. Bush. It basically provides all sorts of protections and anti-discrimination for people with disabilities generally. So it prevents employment discrimination discrimination from public entities and government programs, some certain government things, and also just public access. So think about when you have like ramps or sidewalks or parking spaces, like all sorts of different things, and that you can't be discriminated at work if you are working for a business with 15 or more employees, that there's certain procedures that they have to follow and different protections. So having civil rights is really important, especially because people with disabilities are one of the last protected groups to get civil rights protection. So with general civil rights with related to like race and gender and national origin, you saw those things in the 60s. You saw discrimination prohibited against people with disabilities for the first time in education and in programs receiving federal funding in the 70s. And then you saw protests and different demonstrations to try to get those enacted later in the 70s. So disability history is something that if you is I'm starting to learn a lot more about and it's super interesting seeing how this has happened. But the ADA was kind of that big cherry on top victory of that we have the same rights and protections as anybody else. Mm -hmm. And there's still a long way to go. Yeah. Why do some critics believe the law should be repealed? I think people have a misunderstanding of what the ADA is. Kind of what I've noticed is people think that it provides extra protections or it's kind of arbitrary or you see a lot of drive-by lawsuits. So I think people think that it's being used to bully businesses or it costs them a lot of money, which isn't necessarily always true. Like people always will tell me like accommodations are so expensive. And I'm like, really? Because the average accommodation at work is under about $500 and a lot don't cost anything at all. 
Like if you go by what I would need to feel successful, perhaps it could just be wearing headphones. That doesn't cost the business anything. Or to be able to take a break or to break things up into smaller assignments is all these things don't cost anything. So it's really interesting kind of seeing what the perceptions are of people with disabilities and what people think we need versus what we actually do need. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. What do you envision for the future of the ADA? I think the ADA needs to more explicitly cover the internet. Like the case law obviously has been covering the internet and judicial opinions, but I think it would be really nice to see that covered more explicitly in legislation. So websites are supposed to be accessible and compliant. So that way blind users can use them and they're, they can be interpreted through screen readers and all sorts of great things to make sure that they're accessible to people with disabilities. So. I would love to see more captioning. Again, I know we were talking about this with podcasts, but transcripts are wonderful because then folks who are hard of hearing or have auditory processing issues can follow along. Or some of us just prefer reading to listening because of our attention span. So I think accessibility is something that needs to be at the forefront. And accessibility doesn't just benefit disabled people, which people often think it does. Think about closed captions on TV. Closed captions originally were intended for deaf and hard of hearing folks, but at the same time, plenty of other people will watch TV with closed captions. People who might be learning a language for the first time and that's not their first language. Exactly. Or people like me who stop the TV every five seconds and go, wait, what what did that person just say? So a lot of accessibility things end up benefiting as many people as possible. And even just how our sidewalks are designed is They were designed for wheelchairs, but they end up being easier on cars and people walking. There's so much about accessibility that generally benefits everyone. And I'd like to see that more of a priority and more of a standard than kind of an afterthought. Yeah. Could you explain what the neurodiversity movement is? So neurodiversity is this under recognition that there are different types of brains and neurotypes in society. So it's kind of this biological fact of life. But the neurodiversity movement is that people who do have different brains and all kinds of minds are to be accepted and respected. So you do have neurodivergence. So people whose brains aren't necessarily typical, people who might have ADHD, people who are autistic, intellectual disabilities, learning disabilities, certain mental health conditions, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just really understanding and being aware and also just accepting. So I think that's kind of the main goal is, again, making sure that autistic people and disabled people of all types are included and respected and part of society, not having to deal with the same stigmas and stereotypes that we've been dealing with for a long time. Ableism is exhausting. Yeah. (laughs) I do definitely want to talk about ableism too. It comes in a lot of different forms. (laughs) Yeah. But first, with the neurodiversity movement, how do you think social media is being used positively and negatively? I think positively, people are more connected and people are able to get educated quickly. Negatively, I think that people are very quick to judge and they're very quick to criticize something they don't understand or people will say, you are using the wrong word, therefore you are wrong. And sometimes... I think it's really important, especially not to be too judgmental online because people are going through their own learning process. Again, with inclusion, it's about learning, listening, and then action. So people might still be in a listening or learning phase and you're expecting them to take action by using the correct terminology, making sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed. But honestly, a lot of us are always going to be listening and learning and we're going to take actions that might not always be correct. Advocacy and activism is 
a messy, beautiful journey for everybody. I read things that I wrote when I was a teenager. I read things that I wrote when I was in college. And like we were talking about, I don't always agree with everything that I thought. And I know that there are words that I've used that I won't use now. I will never, I don't describe myself as high functioning anymore. Like I used to when I was younger because that's what I knew. And that's what other people taught me. And then I'm like, wait, this is really bad because it excludes a lot of other people. And it also minimizes the fact that there are things that are really hard for me. This isn't helping anybody. Mm-hmm. So I think you realize that your attitudes and perceptions continue to evolve. And that's a beautiful thing. And I think the internet has a way of reminding you that where you came from, and it's not always a good thing when they do that. So instead of celebrating the fact that you have obviously learned, sometimes they will harp on that mistake indefinitely. Yeah. There's also just a huge energy in the air right now with cancel culture. Mm -hmm. I think it's bad when people double down and defend their mistakes. Like I understand, and do you say like, I was young, I didn't know better, but then they go, but I still believe that. And there's nothing wrong with the fact they did that. It's like, well, there is, it's just, you have to acknowledge it and move on and then do things continuously that show that's not where you're coming from and that you've grown. Yeah. I think cancel culture probably has its place, but I think there's also so much we could do to extend the olive branch and go, it's okay. We all mess up. We've all done stuff. It's just how we handle the fact we make a mistake, not the fact that we made one. Nobody is perfect. Right. Yeah. I think there just needs to be more of an acceptance for growth and learning. And giving people the opportunity to grow. Mm-hmm. Instead of just saying, you did it wrong, therefore you're done, is okay. Unless it's a repeated problem of this person is making these mistakes and they're just not listening and they don't care. I think that's very different than, I made a mistake. What do I do to do better? Like, I'm sorry I did this. How can I re- rectify this and move forward and do the right thing? Mm-hmm. So on the topic of ableism, you wrote an article in Teen Vogue last summer about how benevolent ableism can be a form of bullying. So first, for listeners, could you define ableism and then explain what you mean by benevolent ableism? Ableism is a set of stereotypes and prejudices and attitudes that are negative towards people with disabilities. So it's all sorts of things that end up harming us. So... When I talk about benevolent ableism, it's usually something that's meant in a positive way to try to help, but also reinforces your stereotypes and stigmas against people with disabilities. So when I thought of bullying for a long time, I would always say I was never bullied because I thought bullying was very two-dimensional. I thought bullying meant either someone called you names or somebody physically hurt you. But I realized I'd never had that experience, but I definitely was bullied and excluded and part of dealing with people who had ableist views. And the worst thing for me, especially in benevolent ableism, is it would come from people who cared a lot about you. So it always came from like a friend, but you would be the one friend in the group that wasn't invited to the party. And when you confront them about that, instead of just saying like, oh, it was an oversight, they go, well, it was at this loud place. We didn't think you'd want to go. And it ultimately just reinforces what they think you are or aren't capable of. And it sounds really good. Like, oh, they were trying to be considerate by thinking that it might be too much for me. But you're like, that's a decision I should be making. I can tell you if something is too much for me. You shouldn't have to strip me of my own independence or autonomy to make a decision because I will absolutely let you know if something is too much. Mm -hmm. And not giving me that decision is exclusion. And it's also just cruel because you realize you're the one person in the group of seven people that didn't get invited, even though they're telling you they love and care about you. And it's really frustrating because that's not something you just see as a high schooler. It's something that you see even as an adult. 
that you see this subtle form of bullying that people go, but, but we were doing the right thing. We, we, you, we know you don't like jazz music, so we didn't even invite you to the concert. Yeah, but maybe I would have wanted to go just to hang out with you guys. And maybe I would have just worn headphones or noise canceling headphones or found a way to be, or join you afterwards for dinner or something. Like, I think that's what comes in is people are just going based on this stereotype belief. And ultimately they're just doing something that's harmful and they don't mean to be harmful. And that's why I say it's benevolent. It's like, they mean well. It doesn't mean that they're doing the right thing or they're actually being nice. Yeah. When this has happened to you, have you had conversations with your friends afterwards and explained? I try. Okay. It gets awkward because people feel really bad that they did something wrong, but you're also like, I know you mean well, and I know you're not trying to be hurtful, but this, I feel that this is hurtful because I would have really have liked to go. But you don't like loud things, but I would have liked to at least have had the decision or I would have really have liked to hang out with you more. Mm-hmm. And when people see it from the other perspective, they're like, oh, wow, we'll make sure that we invite you next time, no matter where we're going. And it's just a productive conversation that has to happen because we all have ableism and ableist views in some way, shape or form. Just because I am autistic doesn't mean I don't have other views against other disabilities that I realize I have to actively confront or other biases that I might have. All of us have bias. We all have stereotyped in some way. It doesn't mean we're bad people. We just are wired that way. It's human. We just have to confront it and be cognizant of where our biases are. Yeah. So changing gears, Haley, this April, you were slated to speak at the UN on World Autism Awareness Day. And I know that you'd been communicating with the Global Autism Project about sitting on a panel, and we were so excited to share the moment with you. I know. I wanted to go so badly. Maybe next year. Yes, hopefully. Obviously, it was canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But the theme this year was the transition to adulthood. And I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak on that topic right now. I know this is not the UN. We're very far (laughs) from that iconic stage, but maybe we can just pretend. So... (laughs) What message do you want to say now about the transition to adulthood? I think I would have probably went back to that idea of independence, that when we were talking about young students, about how independence is not just doing it all by yourself. And I also would have loved to have talked about employment for people on the spectrum and making sure that we're not just filling a diversity seat or just putting people into just low-level positions, but in training for careers rather than just jobs. So I think there's a big focus on jobs, but not as much on career. So how are we going to make sure that people continue to move through the world, that they keep moving up and that we are being given those equal opportunities? So that's stuff that I spend a lot of time thinking about. And that's kind of just the elevator pitch of things that I'm always thinking about, because again, I could be here all day talking about my thoughts on employment and independence and interdependence and how we could take care of each other better. But I think that's kind of just things to get started thinking about and including more in the mainstream autism conversation that so often focuses on kids. Right. So what was the transition to adulthood like for you? So I'm still like a baby adult, I feel like, because I'm still like not 100% sure what I'm doing all the time. I know when I first went to college, I didn't even know how to do laundry properly. I am still learning how to do some of those things. I'm still learning to conquer my fear of parking the car. It's not that I can't drive or won't drive. It's just that I can't figure out the spatial awareness of parking between the lines for some reason. It just never clicked right. I want it to click. It's been like 10 years and it still doesn't click, but we're going to get there someday. That's my personal Mount Everest of adulthood. But I think it's really just how we get to do things. So 
I wish that we spent more time explicitly teaching life skills because I think we're just expected to know how to do things and it doesn't work that way. I know for me, I need things kind of spelled out. I know if I don't write it down, it doesn't get done. That's what I know with even scheduling this conversation we went through that. I'm like, you have to send me like a Zoom link or something because otherwise it will never end up on my calendar. Right. Yeah. That whatever time this is, will just come and go and you will go, she ditched me. <laughs> and it's not that I wanted to ditch you or just didn't care. It's just, it wasn't on my calendar and it just didn't register mm-hmm. because there's only so much I can remember off the top of my head. And I'm usually pretty good at remembering stuff, but when it comes to scheduling and people and different things, then I want it written down because then I can at least keep track of where my day is going. Mm-hmm. Are you receiving any services now? No, I live at home right now because of the pandemic. So Yeah. Yeah. So having support from mom and dad is great. My mom is a really good cook. Oh, that is always a plus. I am not. (laughs) (laughs) So it's definitely been a very nice adjustment in that regard. Yeah. These days, there's a lot of hesitation with terminology and people wanting to be politically correct about things. What are your thoughts on calling autism a disorder? That's a really interesting topic because I feel like I understand where it comes from, but I also don't know if I think of it as disorder because I think disorder is really kind of extra stigmatizing in a way, but I also don't know a better definition. Mm -hmm. So it's just different. But I feel like calling it a difference just minimizes, especially people who do have more support needs or who have co-occurring conditions or also have an intellectual disability is it's not just a difference for them. So I feel like this goes into is autism a disability or a difference conversation. And it's like, it's everything. So it could be a disorder. It could be a disability. It could be a difference. It really depends on what your attitude is and what affects you the most. So I feel like there's no one answer to that question. Right. I think about it a lot through like the different models of disability. So a lot of people in the autism community are really big on social model. And basically that the environment is more disabling than the disability itself, which in a lot of ways is true. The environment is very disabling for autistic people. But if we had none of those barriers from our friends, our colleagues, our environment, there would still be things that are really hard for us. They're never going to get rid of all the loud noises in the world. They might never get rid of things that make me anxious or make me afraid or that might make it harder to communicate. And then there are things that are very much a disability that or different aspects of life that I would love to see more interventions to help improve quality of life. I would love to have magic bullets to executive functioning. I would love to be able to sleep through the night more often and not have something in my head wake me up or something that I'm thinking of and go, wait, you were supposed to do the thing. You didn't do the thing. So I feel like there's definitely a balance and it goes with all sorts of disability perspectives. There's no one right answer. And sometimes every side has something to say that is valid and correct. So autism is a disability. It's just both medically and socially that there is different things. Like even before reading, it wasn't as big of a deal if you needed glass. Like glasses weren't really, think about that. Like even certain things like reading in our society made some people disabled and others not. But before reading, it wasn't always that way. So it's really interesting to kind of take from a, Disability Studies 101 perspective of, wait, there is no one correct model to this. That you can have disorder or disability, whatever word you're choosing, and not just through one lens. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on finding a cure for autism, especially for those who may be labeled as severe? I feel in general, I don't think there's going to be this one all be all cure. I think that, again, I support any research that improves quality of life. 
that's kind of my general thing. Anything that can make life more bearable or more enjoyable or alleviate things that are really difficult. Like I think it would be great if we spent more time investing in AAC for communication. If we started thinking more out of the box, make sure that even people who do have far more needs than I do or need more full-time support that we're able to give them that. It doesn't mean that we want them to be neurotypical. It just means that we want to be able to give them the tools to have the best life we can. And I think that's kind of where research needs to go rather than let's make everyone neurotypical. I think it needs to go in this direction of how can we improve quality of life? Because we are always going to have neurodivergent people around. We just will. That's fact. So how do we make sure that we're able to make their lives as equitable, fair, and happy as possible? Mm -hmm. I would love to see people I know not have to worry about all sorts of other mental health or even just sleep or gut problems or whatever it might be. I think improving quality of life should always be the priority when it comes to research. Yeah. Well, that's true if you're born and then you have autism. But there's an ethical question of how far do you want to play with eugenics? Like if a mother was pregnant and maybe there was a pretest to detect autism. I feel weird about the whole thing. So I know a lot about eugenics and history because it's something that I always found interesting because even just like I like I grew up Jewish. So even hearing about the Holocaust and even how Nazi Germany began experimenting on people with disabilities and the first systematic murder that they had was people with disabilities through Action T4. And then you think about T4 and you think this is just a horrible Nazi atrocity. And then you look back and you realize they got those ideas from us here in the U.S. Mm. That eugenics really was an American thing. It's even with Supreme Court decisions going back to the 20s of Buck v. Bell, where Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes famously wrote that three generations of imbeciles is enough. Oh, interesting. So, and it never was an overturned decision. It was about forced sterilization. So eugenics is a really complicated topic. Yeah. And even just how we've, discriminated and treated people with disabilities throughout history, even with ugly laws that wouldn't allow certain people with physical deformities to appear in public and all sorts of different things. When you look at it through a historical lens, you wonder, how is this going to help people? It's taking it too far. Yeah. Especially because there has been such a history of this against people with disabilities for so long. So it really shouldn't be just, we need to end this. It should be, how do we just improve quality of life? Right. Yeah. I see your point. But I also think that neurodiversity, again, is just part of human diversity, that you will always have people who are autistic in life. That's never not going to happen. And that, again, goes back to the whole pro-life, pro-choice, whatever you may be, that you will always have people who are different in society, no matter what they do or don't find. So that's why I think everything ultimately goes back to supporting the existing people and people who have yet to be born or exist yet. Yeah. Because how can we just make sure everyone has equal opportunity and has quality of life Mm -hmm. and has the potential to live the best life they can? It's just scary to think about the future and what technology is capable of. And I guess it's up to us and up to legislators at that point to put regulations into place. I don't know. It gets a little bit messy. Exactly. I like having out-of-the-box thinking. I do not like not being able to keep track of my laundry are not having the skills sometimes to sort the importance of when do I clean? When do I do this? When do I do that? I would love to have something that would make life that much better in that regard. I would love not to be anxious about trying new food. Like all these little tiny things. I would love it if research could give me answers to that stuff, but I don't want to have a different brain. Right. I get that. Well, Haley, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. And I'd like to close with just one last question. 
What advice would you give to other autistic people who may be masking and finding it difficult to fit in? So I think we talked a lot about masking and navigating a world that isn't always designed with you in mind, especially with ableism and all sorts of different things, and even in research. So I think it's really important we talk about these things, number one, and that it's important to be yourself. And I think self-acceptance comes from within. It's a journey. I think it's really important that you do the things that you love. All of us are so talented and so interesting and have so much to offer this world. So whether it's your special interest, no matter what it is, keep doing you. Keep doing what matters to you and feels important and makes you happy. And I think we don't talk about that enough in this community. And I wish we talked more about autistic joy. I wish we talked about how amazing it feels when something so good happens that you have to flap your hands. That we don't talk about how it feels when you discover something new about your special interest or when you do solve something with the way that your brain thinks and you come up with a solution that is out of the box and other people are like, oh my God. So I think it really is important that we have that conversation beyond too. And we celebrate the joy and also just learn not only how to navigate a world that isn't made for us, but also kind of challenge other people around us to make the world more accessible and equitable for us too. That the work shouldn't just have to fall on you. Yeah, exactly. Love it. (laughs) Everything is a team effort. It just shouldn't be 95% of the time I'm making the effort for you to give 5% and then tell me you would rather give three. That it should be a two-way street and actually a two-way street because 97% is not the new half, as someone else much smarter than me once said. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Haley. You're an inspiration to so many people around you. And I really appreciate your honesty and your authenticity. Thank you. So where can people follow you and learn more about you? So I am a young person who is very online. So I spend a lot of time on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Haley Moss Art, or you can find me at HaleyMoss.net. Perfect. And we'll be sure to post a link to those in our show notes. Perfect. This is such a rich conversation that I think our audience can really benefit from. I mean, we have such a wide range of people. We have self-advocates who would hear your story and then be inspired. And Mm -hmm. we also have parents and professionals in the field. And I think just hearing from autistic voices is what we need to be doing. So I really appreciate it. I appreciate it too. So thank you for giving me the platform to talk about things that I find interesting. All right. Thanks, Haley. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. I want to encourage employers to reflect on some of the questions that Haley raised. For some context, the unemployment rate for Americans with any kind of disability was about 7.3% in 2019. The unemployment rate for college-educated autistic people was as high as 85% according to statistics from 2016. This number does not include adults who are able to work but have given up looking for employment, also known as discouraged workers. How can we teach more life skills in order to prepare autistic adolescents for adulthood? How can we go beyond simply diversifying the workplace? How can we provide better opportunities for people to pursue careers of interest also outside the field of technology? How do we promote accessibility within the workplace so that differently abled individuals can excel? I would like to finish by highlighting Haley's advice to other people with autism. Know when you need help and don't be afraid to ask for it.
By making your voices heard, we can listen, learn, and take action. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.